News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. 6.20 on this Thursday morning. It is time to check in with our show contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, Kobe Bryant's widow, Vanessa Bryant, has been awarded $16 million after a civil trial that went into apparently graphic detail, very graphic detail about gruesome photos that were taken and shared from the scene of the helicopter crash. That's the helicopter crash uh, that resulted in the death of Kobe Bryant and of their daughter as well. And the images that circulated, they were taken by Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies. They were taken by firefighters. They shared these photos. They shared them with people they knew at a bar. They shared these photos at a gala event. I also want to note, though, that of that 16 million, because people will be hearing this going, what does she need 16 million for? 15 million of the 16 million went to the co plaintiff, Christopher Chester, who also lost his wife and daughter in the crash, too. So, Bryant, a five-time NBA champion, considered really one of the greatest players, one of the greatest athletes in history. He's a king in the game. No one, I think, besides forensics should be taking casual photos of his death scene. It's It was so undignified, so disrespectful to the family, lacks in empathy. And I wonder how any of those police officers would have felt if images of their spouses' death scenes were taken and just casually shared with folks at at bars and at galas and that kind of thing. So I'm really glad that the uh, judge and jury uh, went in this way and uh, have uh, come down hard on people taking photos of a death scene and thinking it's okay to share them. Yeah, I was surprised, though, that uh, following along or reading uh, kind of the, the findings of the jury and the awarding of the damages, the $16 million to Bryant, the fifteen million to uh, Chris Chester, uh, that, the, it, that it was a huge settlement like that or a huge award that was given out and, and distasteful, yes, but also the fact that the photos hadn't been published or they hadn't been shared, they, they hadn't been uh, put on social media or put on sites, but I know that Vanessa Bryant had said that was her biggest fear, that she was going to one day see them, see them somewhere or that her kids were going to see them somewhere. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think about this situation really as empathetically as I possibly can. So yes, they were not published, say, for example, on the cover of a newspaper, right? But still, how horrific. She knows that's, that these officers took these photos and then shared them privately with people. Still just as horrific. And then apparently she learned about it uh, from the LA Times reporting it, reporting that, that officers had taken photos. And then, of course, she'd be so worried that, that her children might see these images. You know, just an awful way for her husband to be remembered. And back in March 2020, the sheriff of Los Angeles County said that eight deputies had admitted possessing graphic photos of Kobe Bryant's helicopter crash site uh, and that they he was regretful of this, that they had deleted them from their phones. That is a lot of people, eight deputies saying that they did this. And I think, you know, cell phones have become and smartphones, phones you can use to take pictures with basically have become so ubiquitous 
and they became ubiquitous really quickly. We didn't have much time, I feel, for discussion along the way about when it's appropriate to use your phone or not um, to take pictures. And I think we've gotten to this point where people have lost all decorum around it. I see people pulling out phones sometimes to take pictures of strangers without permission in order to later ridicule them online anonymously. Um, I see people commonly just like pull their phones out at a restaurant, or whatever, and take photos of a scene that has other people like in the foreground. It's just so common now to take pictures wherever we want that we've gotten to the point that people who are on duty, these officers who are on duty, forgot their decorum entirely in a scene where you'd think it, they would know not to do that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one thing for crime scene photos and part of an investigation and the official photos that are taken and are very necessary, but a different thing completely if it's just a few snaps on a cell phone and thinking, well, what are you going to do with those photos or what's the motivation for taking that? Or perhaps uh, it was just an issue of clout that they found themselves in this, uh, you know, just scene where they thought, wow, I'm never going to be near a celebrity that is this popular, this famous. And they wanted to they wanted to take advantage of that in a way that they thought would benefit them down the road. I don't know why would why they would actually take the photos that many officers taking the photos too. I don't think it was for the public good. I don't think it was because they suddenly thought they were part of the forensics team or anything like that. I think they were just thinking about how it might benefit them. And uh, maybe they were thinking, I don't know that they could sell these photos. Who knows? I just, I'm just baffled at how inappropriate that kind of conduct is. All right. Well, lots of reaction to that this morning. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, during a campaign announcement of sorts, well, this was actually an announcement about the two-rink Cloverdale Sport and Ice Complex Wednesday. There came a bit of a surprise campaign commitment from Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. We are going to build a 60,000 person uh, arena in Surrey. Um, And it'll be a multi-use arena um, for all sports. And so uh, we envision um, the city is a very big city, will be bigger than Vancouver in four or five years. We need a sports stadium. So we're going to build a sports stadium in the next few years. So where are you going to put it? We're looking at two, three locations right now. But we'll let you know when we decide on one. That was Doug McCallum announcing that if re-elected, he and his team would start seriously looking at and building, committing to building a 60,000-seat stadium. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Joining us now is President and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Huberman. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, What is your reaction after hearing that uh, rather, uh, I think it came as a surprise to a lot of people about plans to build that stadium? Well, it just underscores the fact that there really is no economic plan for Surrey. Uh, You have the shot-in-the-dark election promises and other infrastructure promises and, uh, and, you know, even the canal concept. uh, That didn't make sense either. 
And so what we really need in Surrey is uh, a convention center. We need tourism, cultural assets. We need um, more effective ways to get around the large geographic uh, area of our city, uh, housing, more businesses. You know, that's an economic plan. And, uh, and what he announced, what our mayor announced uh, yesterday, is not in the capital budget of the city of Surrey. Uh, we have no idea what the burden of taxation is going to be on businesses, which bear the brunt of taxation, uh, and on residents. And uh, and so, yes, uh, you know, we, we have no idea where this concept came from and uh, really took everyone uh, by surprise. So as far as you know, has there been any talk about building a 60,000-person arena in Surrey? There's been conversations uh, in the past 10 years about a smaller size stadium, um, more in the Bridgeview area near the Patello Bridge. Uh, there were investors ready at the table, but I, for some reason, uh, deals fell apart. And uh, so there have been conversations related to that. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, we need a performing arts center. You know, we need the uh, infrastructure related to a big city. Uh, we're going to be the largest city in BC very soon. And uh, if there was a plan, uh, if there was uh, something that, uh, you know, the business community, the residents, you know, could be confident about, uh, then uh, we could buy into this concept that the Surrey mayor has put into place. But again, it's election season. Uh, everyone is promising jewels uh, in order to get reelected. And so it all remains to be seen if, if this will happen. Uh, we're going to be hearing more from Doug McCallum later today with uh, more on his campaign and what that's going to look like. Uh, you mentioned, though, as far as uh, Surrey would like to, or, or your thoughts on a convention centre, performing arts centre, some other things that Surrey uh, might need first or, or would be better. Uh, does it concern you, though, as far as this? I mean, this is being described as a, an election promise, a campaign promise. It was a surprise announcement uh, without a business plan, uh, without even uh, answers to some basic questions about who would fund this, where the funding might come from. Well, that reminds me of 2018 uh, when the SkyTrain was announced without a plan all the way to Langley. Where is the money going to come from? Uh, it reminds me of the transition uh, of uh, a from the RCMP to a municipal police force uh, in Surrey. No plan. Where's the money going to come from? Where's the infrastructure going to come from? So again, um, you know, we are at the, the tipping point at our city where we are going to be the largest city uh, within uh, BC. We're part of the Cascadia Economic Corridor. We're a border city. Uh, we need to think regionally, economic development. We need to think about job creation. We need to think about ways we can leverage and inc implement infrastructure uh, for housing, um, for hotels, for a convention center, tourism, art, and culture assets to enhance the livability of our city. Because in the end, that's what local government politicians should be focusing on, is enhancing the livability and affordability of residents and our workforce.
And when you talk about Surrey becoming the largest city uh, population-wise, there seems to be some discrepancy on the numbers or the timeline. I know uh, Mayor McCallum, I think, said within the next four or five years that uh, it would be the largest city. Uh, If you look at the Metro Vancouver population growth projection charts, though, they don't really see it overtaking Vancouver's population for, for several years. Are there other numbers or, or what time frame are you looking at? Or do you think that Surrey could exceed the city of Vancouver's population? Well, it's not going to be in five years. Um, you know, we take stats, we're, we're, we're uh, you know, from Statistics Canada and Metro Vancouver stats. Uh, so our population is expected to exceed Vancouver's by 2040. And uh, we are growing by 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. Uh, but we have the most number of newcomers that move into our city. Uh, and so that could, you know, tip us being uh, the largest city within British Columbia even sooner. And the migration, the interprovincial migration, um, you know, into Surrey's, into the South Fraser area, uh, that could also lend us into the tipping point of being the, the largest city within BC even sooner. But it's, it's not going to be in five years. Uh, it's going to be soon. But all we're saying at the Surrey Board of Trade is we need to start now. Uh, we are already behind in terms of infrastructure development. Not too sure the stadium should be the priority here. Uh, but uh, we definitely need an infrastructure and economic plan for the city. All right. Anita Huberman, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, a daycare operator in Powell River is pleading with the federal government to please fast track immigration paperwork as it is grappling with a staff shortage. Marjorie Jones runs the Second Nature Child Care Center and Nature's Way Child Care Center in, the, in that area. This is what she had to say about the situation at her daycare. I have 28 licensed child care spots that are currently empty due to no licensed early childhood educators. I can't let this community struggle like this. That was Marjorie Jones speaking with Global News. We are joined now by Emily Gallick, Executive Director of Early Childhood Educators of BC. Emily, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm guessing that that's not unique to uh, to Marjorie, that other child care centers are facing the same issues and having shortages when it comes to staff. How big of an issue is it right now? Well, I think the issue is extreme right now, and it has it's not something that's new for generations. I remember dealing with the exact same issues uh, even 20 years ago. And yesterday we heard from Marjorie saying if, if immigration was fast tracked or, or she could at least she can she couldn't find anybody in Canada. But when she expanded that search, there are people who are ready, able, qualified for these jobs, but they're kind of stuck in immigration limbo. Uh, if it was fast tracked, she's saying that would at least help. But is that something you think would help the situation? 
Well, absolutely. I think that there has to be innovative ways to deal with the shortage of qualified early childhood educators. And if these people are qualified and wanting and willing to come to Canada to offer high quality child care, it would be it would support uh what's happening, but we definitely need multiple ways of dealing with such a severe shortage of early childhood educators. What else do you think needs to be done? Well, I think government does have a, our provincial government does have a a recruitment and retention strategy right now, and I like to see that being elevated, uh, increased bursaries or access to post-secondary education, uh, looking at having a wage grid that looks at the wages and compensation and working conditions for early childhood educators are all part of a, a robust system. Uh, How are the numbers then as far as people going into early childhood education? Are we graduating enough people or or making it so it is attractive and people are going into that line of work? Well, I I don't think we actually have much of an issue of recruitment. We're we're seeing that the programs in post-secondary are really full. Um, It's keeping people here. So we need to attract people to stay in the profession. And as we move forward to to building this new childcare system in BC, we have to really be clear that there's not going to be any shortcuts either. Like we need to have qualified people that understand the complexities of the work that we're doing. And we want to keep that in mind as as well, so it's going to take some time to to really get the best of the best into this um, sector. And when you talk about building the new system, do you mean as far as building ten dollar a day childcare and bringing that in? Absolutely, yeah. So we really still need to get moving on building the ten a day childcare system, so families have access, um, they can afford to put their children if and when they need it, and that we look at the workforce and the quality of the people and support support the people that are going to be doing this important work. Uh, and that's what I'm hearing from some uh, operators of childcare centres in that they're waiting for that information from government as far as what the reimbursement is going to be, uh, what uh, if a childcare operator is, is charging a certain amount now, how much they'll be able to charge and be reimbursed. It does seem like there are a lot of questions out there that still haven't been answered. Yeah, that's what um, we are hearing the same thing as well. And we know a lot of um, providers that are already part of the 10 a day system in the pilot phase. And they are quite happy with how things are progressing. And I would assume that government will be having deeper and stronger relationships with owners and operators to, to talk about uh, what, what that funding structure will look like. And in the meantime, though, do you think, I know the immigration minister said that that fast-tracking immigration is not a silver bullet, but do you think it would at least help the issue of staff shortages? I I imagine it would in some communities. I just don't know how... uh how fast, how how much that would help. Like we're in desperate need, just like other professions. Um, we're in, in really in a lot of need to have have those educators working in childcare programs. All right, to Emily, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this this morning. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, the Better Business Bureau of BC is out with a warning saying home improvement scams now rank fourth in Canada for the riskiest scams out there. And unfortunately, they are very popular in this province. For more on this, we are joined once again by show contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, these scams happen to a lot of people, but not everyone reports them. In fact, I know several people who've fallen prey uh, to home improvement scams for their roofs or their decking, and they never ended up reporting it because they just didn't think it was worth the trouble. And in fact, recently, a neighbor of mine wanted to get the exterior of their home painted. And this was spurred because someone came to the door and said, hey, looks like you could use a new paint job here. And this is how much I would charge you. The only thing is you have to sign up like in the next couple of days or else I just I can't do it. And so the neighbor thought they were doing their due diligence by going and getting another quote. They got this other quote and this professional quote from a super painter they found online who was licensed uh, was double, double the, the money. So they thought, okay, I'm going to go with this person who came to the door. The person who came to the door was, I guess, not a professional painter. They did such a shoddy job. And afterwards, there was no way to reach them once the neighbor had done an inspection of it and gone, oh, I don't think this is up to, to par. And this uh, person didn't even have a website for their company. So the neighbor had fallen for one of these home renovation scams. And even they didn't uh, report it to the Better Business Bureau uh, like I guess they should have. And I talked to a home inspector, Sean Sunderland. He's a co-owner of the inspectors. And he told me that he sees the shoddy work of fake tradespeople all the time. And when he see, he's seeing it, it's obviously way too late to do anything about it. And he saw one older woman get taken for thousands of dollars. This person had hired someone to rebuild a deck that was completely rotted out. They said they were going to come in. It would probably take two weeks to finish. I think they were quoted roughly $25,000 to have this deck done. Um, It just turned out to be a nightmare. They didn't get permits. They said they were going to get permits. Uh, They started the work. None of the work was done in any professional standard. Without question, because I looked at it, they did not know what they were doing. This poor old woman was really at their mercy because their neighbor also complained that they never got permits. So the city got involved. The deck had to come down because they didn't have permits and the work was not done to any kind of code. So she was essentially out of the money because when she went to try to get her money back, that company didn't exist. And I asked the Better Business Bureau what to look out for there. Simone Liss is their CEO, and she told me that some of the riskier ones out there, uh, they're the ones that offer people that offer the biggest deal to you, and it's a deal that you're supposed to go for immediately or else, you know, no deal at all. When we talk about home improvement scams, we're often talking about uh, fly-by-night businesses who um, show up in the neighborhood Uh, and use high-pressure sales tactics to get your attention. Uh, They may have um, an offering that if you don't take advantage of it today, then you're out of luck. Um, And generally, they could be any type of contractor. They could be um, roofers. They could be offering to do pavement, cleaning of your roof. Um, But the key here is, is that they're showing up to your door, and it's 
take advantage of it now or, or you won't get it. And home inspector Sean Sunderland said that some of the scammers are misleading homeowners from the get-go. They're even lying about their credentials. And then they tell the uh, their client that it's fully under warranty and just give them this fake piece of paper that, that says it's a warranty. Well, um, sorry, even, even if it's a qualified roofer, if the roof isn't installed correctly, the warranty is not valid. And then what happens when you tell these homeowners some of this work is not as good as maybe you thought it was? Well, that's my everyday life. <laughs> um, I just left a brand new house that, uh, you know, not the best quality. When I tell people that, um, I give them a little bit of advice, you know, contact the Better Business Bureau, see if they're a registered company with the BBB. After that, you know, do some research on the person that did the work and see if they actually do exist and seek legal action. It's, it's absolutely horrible what's happening to people. They just get hosed. It's it's really sad. I mean, the amount of unskilled people doing work they should not do. I've even, I've even seen electrical work done by somebody that said that they were an electrician and clearly they were not an electrician. And you know, a homeowner isn't going to go, let me see your trade ticket. They just get kind of caught up in the moment. I mean, the, the ideal thing would be, yes, I'm going to look at you at the Better Business Bureau or I'm going to check the city to see if you're licensed or, or an association such as, you know, your journeyman ticket or something like that to research you. But nobody does that. Hmm, interesting. And like he said there, nobody does that. But but why wouldn't you? If you're spending thousands of dollars in many of these cases and it's your home, you would think people would do a little bit of homework, a little bit of research. Or you know what, Jill, I think sometimes people do a little bit of research. They'll go and get one more quote or they might have no prior knowledge of anything having to do with a roof whatsoever. So maybe they read one article online and then they think, yeah, this person seems to fit the bill and they go for it. You know, we also get told all the time, make sure you get quotes. And I think sometimes people are so enticed by a really good offer. It's so low, it can't be beat that they go, okay, I did well. I did my research. I got two quotes. I'm going to go for the lower one rather than thinking, oh, can this person with a lower quote even do the job well? I mean, I have in the past uh, hired people on a on a whim just really quickly to do an odd job here or there. And I admit that I didn't do much research, but they were very uh, small jobs and didn't uh, pay that much in the first place. But um, I didn't do my, uh, my homework beforehand. This story made me think, and especially because of how common it is, made me think going forward how much more homework I will do and how much more homework I'll encourage uh, friends and family and neighbors to do before they're hiring someone. Uh, even with the issue of quotes. I mean, a good rule of thumb is always get three because then you're not going to have one that's huge, one that's half. Obviously, you should be a little wary if one's half. But if you get three, at least you get a better idea if someone's in the right ballpark. Yeah, totally. And for things like getting the house painted or landscaping, I think sometimes people think, oh, well, what could go wrong? Um, well, if it's not your forte, if it's not your area of expertise, actually a lot could go wrong. So that's, that is something to think about. And to also ask, not just for ask these tradespeople, not just for their certification or to see their card, but also ask them, hey, uh, 
do you have anyone that you could forward me the number of as a reference, someone you've worked with before? I'd love to hear what your working relationship was like and how that turned out for them. And that will right away tell you if someone's uh, not legit. And um, you can also go online and read uh, Google reviews of that person's work. So there's different ways that you can go about your homework, not just going for, uh, is this person um, a tradesperson going a little bit deeper and not just going for the the price either. And that good one as well that you mentioned, if somebody shows up at your door and says it's a limited time offer, you have to sign right away. Some uh, warning bells yeah. should be going off in that scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. Warning bells. If someone, I mean, these days, especially with COVID, I always wonder when someone's knocking on my door physically, like how badly they want a sale of something. And uh, that's made me question even more their motivation. Good advice and things for people to watch out for. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the B.C. government and doctors of B.C. providing $118 million. This is short-term funding that will help bring some stability for struggling family doctors. This announcement is being called a first step. The funds will be allocated to support family doctors as well as medical clinics with their operational business costs. The program set to begin on October 1st and will be available for four months. Joining us now to talk more about this is our Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. Thank you so much for making some time this morning. Hey, good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, So this is set to start on October 1st. Do you get a sense on when we'll actually start to see anything change as far as for doctors and for patients when they might see the impact or or what how this helps? Well, the first step uh, is this and helps stabilize existing family, uh, family doctor clinics. Uh, the money will flow in October if people have made the application. We've kept that very simple in this process. And so this assists us in stabilizing. It's just a first step. We'll be making another series of announcements on other issues to, because we need to recruit and take other actions to retain family doctors. And the reason this is for four months is we're working hard together with the doctors of BC on a new, a new way and a new uh, way of paying uh, doctors to support patient care better. And uh, we're expecting that to be in place uh, by January 31st, 2023. And that's why the program is for this period, to keep keep things stable in that period so we can make um, what I think are going to be some transformational and positive changes together. Uh, this is a significant amount of money, even uh, though it is kind of a, a short-term funding or, or bridge funding, as it's been described. Uh, is it challenging, though, or how do you then bridge that gap to the new fee schedule to be announced in the fall? That I mean, is the goal that it will keep it at those levels? Well, the, the goal would be to change the way uh, we uh, pay family doctors, and, and this is in a number of ways. So principally, doctors get paid in one of two ways now. Uh, one is fee-for-service, which is the majority way in B.C. It puts us out of step with a lot of parts of the country, but about 80% of the billings are fee-for-service. And the others are kind of alternative payments, which are mostly forms of salary, right, you know, one way or the other. A lot of young doctors want to go to the latter. So we have to put together uh, an approach to family doctors that supports doctors, 
that ensures that they are adequately compensated by it for issues of complexity and supports them to do their work in the community. We have to address both the needs of existing clinics, but also the fact that a lot of young doctors don't like the current system, don't want, they want to practice medicine and not run businesses. And so you have to reflect both of those things. And that's what we're working together to do. It's not, uh, it's not an issue of me just deciding on my own, but something that we're working together with the doctors of BC on uh, so that we have, a, we put, primary care, which has been, you know, um, not dealt with some issues that have not been dealt with for decades are dealt with now and that we put us on a better footing for the future. The real goal, of course, is to provide better service for patients and better care for patients. And, uh, and that's what this will help do, but not alone. We have to have actions to retain family doctors. We have to have actions to make it easier for internationally educated doctors to practice here. We need other actions and you'll hear about those in the coming weeks. I know there, you've also been asked about this new report that takes a look at the use of private services in our healthcare system. I know that you, you've called the report inaccurate. This was a Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives report. Is there a way, though, to look at this and to see if there is a path to maybe incorporating more private services or doing things in a different way that is more efficient? Well, we have been doing things in a way to make it more efficient. I mean, I call the report wildly inaccurate, I think, and, uh, and I think it is. What we've done, for example, on MRIs is dramatically increase the number of MRIs, shorten the wait time. We were one of the worst jurisdictions in Canada, and now we're one of the best. We, had, we did, in the last year Liberal government, 174,000 MRI exams with long wait times. We did 300,000 in a pandemic last year, or almost 300,000 in a pandemic which is a massive increase. And how did we do it? Well, we added 19 MRI machines to the public system. But mostly we used our existing MRIs 24-7. In other words, we used them more efficiently. We trained more people. And we got people critical questions about their diagnosis faster. And when you're waiting for an MRI, you're waiting for your diagnosis. That means um, when you reduce that, it's better for patients across the board. So we use our existing system better, we train more people, and we use the public health care system to deliver dramatically more services to people in that time. Similarly for surgeries, you'll remember at the beginning of COVID-19, we had to uh, delay tens of thousands of surgeries in BC. So what did we do? Well, we put in place 84 different measures to make the public system more efficient, extending the hours in a day, using weekends, using uh, effective uh, surgery systems to move uh, people through better, better preparation before and after surgery. So, yes, we have to take steps to make our public system more efficient. The last three months, you know, for all the talk about healthcare, way more surgeries, I'd say, than ever before, way more diagnostics than ever before. Uh, and that's uh, a tribute to the work of our doctors and nurses and healthcare administrators across BC. Uh, Minister, we only have about a minute left. I'm curious, uh, when we talk about staffing numbers and shortages in some areas, are there any plans to do what's been done in some other jurisdictions and to allow healthcare workers who are not vaccinated against COVID-19 to come back into the workplace? No, we're not changing that. That rule was put in place in BC and it was difficult, but an important thing to keep our workplaces safer. Where the issue isn't rules, the issue is COVID-19. One of the reasons we have staffing challenges in healthcare is because COVID-19, when it gets into a workplace and people get sick, they have to stay home, right? They test positive. It doesn't matter if it's mild or not mild. They stay home. 
And when you, and right now we have way more people sick in our healthcare system because of COVID-19. So the issue is COVID-19. We keep, have to keep measures in place that uh, protect workers and protect patients. And uh, you bet we expect to do that. All right, Minister, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, take care anytime, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. Jill Bennett in for Simi. Well, some scientists are planning to take uh, what you might call a CAT scan of a BC volcano to help harness the underground heat. That's the heat that turns rock into magma. And could that lead to renewable energy? Well, we have a volcano expert joining us now, Dr. Catherine Hickson a professional geoscientist and chief geologist of Terrapin Geothermics. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you for the invitation. Well, it sounds very exciting. And even talking about volcanoes in BC, because we don't tend to think of of BC as a a high volcano area. (laughs) Yes. So I've actually spent my career working on British Columbia volcanoes and, in fact, trying to educate uh, British Columbians and Canadians that we do indeed have volcanoes here in British Columbia. And so which one are we talking about and where is this one where we're, we're looking at getting this CAT scan and seeing what's happening? <laughs> well, of course, those of you that live in the, lower, in the Lower Mainland have this gorgeous view of Mount Baker. And Mount Baker is an active volcano. It actually um, last had a kind of a failed eruption in uh, 19, the early 1970s. But um, part of the chain that Mount Baker belongs to extends into Canada. Here we call it the Garibaldi Belt after Mount Garibaldi. And the volcano that they're looking at specifically is called Mount Cayley. And Mount Cayley is uh, basically just west of, uh, of Whistler. And what kind of activity have we seen? Or do we know when the last time Mount Cayley was an active volcano? Yes, so Mount Cayley is actually considered a dormant volcano, and we're not absolutely certain of when it last erupted, but it was it was thousands of years ago. It wasn't hundreds of years ago. But all of those volcanoes in that chain, so we're talking about Mount Meager. So Mount Meager is a very prominent one just north of Pemberton. And as we come south, uh, we have Cayley, and then uh, actually there's several other ones in there that people don't know about, uh, but uh, Mount Cayley is one of the prominent ones. And, of course, if they're in the Whistler area, uh, you will see Black Tusk, and Black Tusk is part of this chain of volcanoes. All right. So it's not as though we're concerned that we're going to see eruptions or these are active volcanoes, but there's still a great opportunity, I would imagine, for for geothermal or finding out perhaps how to harness that? Correct. So the most problematic volcano in these Canadian ones um, that are close to us is Mount Garibaldi and its potential impact on Squamish. And that's actually under, um, under uh, there's a research program going on looking at Mount Garibaldi. But the one that is working on right now is by Simon Fraser University, UBC, and uh, the Geological Survey of Canada. And what they're doing is they're trying to really understand the eruptive history of Mount Cayley as well as 
Now, because from a geophysical standpoint, so this is sort of probing the Earth, and this is where the CAT scan comes from, because we use various kinds of ways of probing deep down into the subsurface below the volcano. And we use things like gravity. We use electrical methods because different kinds of rock conduct electricity in different ways. Uh, we use um, magnetism because different rocks have different magnetic proper or different magnetic properties. And so we take all of that together, and what we try to do is develop a picture of the subsurface. And that's what they're focusing on Mount Cayley, because we know there is, and we've known this for several decades, there is a, a bright spot under, and a bright spot from a geophysical perspective under Mount Cayley that could, in fact, be a cooling magma chamber from its last eruption thousands of years ago. Hmm. Uh, interesting. And uh, am I right in saying that a CAT scan is, uh, could provide better information rather than using probing devices where it's, you're kind of, it's luck of where you, you probe and you <laughs> hope to hit something, whereas this gives you a better picture? Yes, absolutely. So the better that we understand the structure, like what it looks like in the subsurface, then the easier it is to target um, our drilling. So if we're talking about geothermal energy, now this magma, the, the fact that Cayley has erupted in the distant past, it is still, there is still hot rock down there. And that hot rock is actually feeding um, uh, a number of hot springs that are in the area of Mount Cayley. And those hot springs tell us that that, that hot springs, along with that geophysical fingerprint, that bright spot, tell us that there is still hot rock down there. Now, if we're talking about, about using that hot rock for geothermal energy, we need to, in fact, drill for it. But drilling is very expensive. Mount Cayley is a very steep, rugged mountain. And so we don't want to expend money needlessly. We want to be able to, with pinpoint accuracy, decide where to drill and how deep to drill. And so that's what this work will be doing on, uh, that all the scientists are working on, is to provide that three-dimensional image of Mount Cayley in order to be able to target future drilling. And am I right as well in saying that Canada is a bit behind when it comes to geothermal projects or trying to harness geothermal energy? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so what's interesting is I spent uh, much of my career as a research scientist with the Geological Survey of Canada. And um, the, the GSC had a, a very significant program back in the 1970s into the early 80s on geothermal energy because we do have the potential here in British Columbia as well as in other parts of Canada. But unfortunately, um, that lagged, and, uh, you know, I mean, we are so blessed with significant hydro resources, which are considered green energy here in British Columbia, and obviously in Alberta, Saskatchewan, with significant natural gas. So geothermal has been a hard, uh, you know, kind of a hard sell in Canada. But what we're trying to do now is sort of resurrect the idea that it's not just electricity. It is, in fact, we can use the, these hot waters for, um, for direct use, heating swimming pools, heating buildings, 
using them for agricultural processes such as greenhouses and whatnot. So even though we haven't produced a lot of, uh, we're not producing electricity in Canada from geothermal resources, we think there's huge potential for these direct use applications. And what kind of timeline do you think we're looking at as far as where we're at now with this exploration and maybe getting to the point of using it that way? Well, it's, it's interesting. Kaylee, we're, we're a number of years um, if, you know, in the future in terms of actually potentially developing it. But, in fact, one of the best um, resources in Canada is Mount Meagre, which is just part of this chain of volcanoes just north of, of Kaylee. And uh, there are, are um, or has been, significant geothermal exploration done there. In fact, there's a number of deep, hot wells. One, the temperature measures 250 degrees centigrade. And a company has taken it over this is about a year ago and um, is looking very hard at uh, resurrecting it and developing it into a, a very high-class uh, geothermal development that will produce power as well as direct-use heat. All right. It is uh, interesting, interesting uh, stuff that's happening uh, and exploration that is going on. Uh, Dr. Hickson, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you again so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm always happy to talk about volcanoes and geothermal. (laughs) All right. We will keep that in mind. Thanks again so much. is Dr. Catherine Hickson, a professional geoscientist, also a volcano expert, chief geologist of Terrapin Geothermics and CEO of Alberta, number one, that is Terrapin's signature geothermal energy project. And uh, interesting things happening, a CAT scan of one of the volcanoes in B.C.,